Good morning. Joining me now from somewhere near Heartland, Minnesota, our good friend, Mr. Al Bat. Hey, Al, how you doing? I'm doing well. It's another beautiful day in the neighborhood, and I hope uh, you're all okay. It's, uh, it's a, every day is beautiful. And I, I do want to mention two things from last uh, week before I get too carried away here. Uh, somebody said the Pelican Breeze, you're doing a, a tour on the Pelican Breeze. Yeah, I go out on a boat on Albert Lee Lake, and we do a natural history tour. And it's on June 27th. So I hope it'll be a nice, cool day then. And uh, they asked how I get a hold of them. It's Pelican Breeze, uh, Pelican Like Pelican and Breeze Like Breeze dot org. Is, uh, you can do it there. You can call 383-7273. So thanks for asking. And the other one, Karen, was we heard something from Rich uh, right uh, after the show last week. And Rich said my wife was planting sweet corn and was telling it, to grow, and I mentioned they can't hear yet because the ears aren't on yet. <laughs> and uh, Rich, I'll, I bet she, her groans could be heard far and wide in the yeah. neighborhood. Uh, but Rich did ask if I know the term, how it came about, the origin of ears of corn. And I remember years ago looking this up, I was writing a column, I think about corn and the number of kernels of corn on an ear. And the head of grain or in the UK maybe there was a spike of grains that says barley or wheat, uh, ended up being called ear. And I think there was all kinds of reasons, but the one that seemed to make the most sense to me was there was an old Germanic word, a ear, meaning husk or chaff. Oh. And it just kind of became ear. And I think it was spelled like A-H-I-R or some, something along that line. And it's uh, an entirely different word from ear, meaning the organ of hearing. And but they just, you know, they kind of look and sound the same. So well, you look at it. when you look at it, Al, if you call it a head of grain, and you look at where the corn, the the one on the corn is, that does look kind of like an ear. If the grain is a head, then that's the ear. So is the tassel the head of the corn? <laughs> I, I suppose it could be. Yeah. So it's one of those. You know, so many of those words. They find so many derivatives from different languages that all kind of funnel towards the same, but they have slightly different words that come in there, but they all kind of mean the same. And I'm going to go with that one. Okay. It's the easiest. Uh, Yuri Justin of Allendale said, Al and Gail, would you like some baby squirrels? There are at least oh, six oh. of them in my backyard. Oh. Their mom led them here. About a month ago, I'd like to say more than they are cute because their cuteness has been overshadowed by their penchant for destroying everything in my yard. I've tried all my usual animal deterrent repellents without much success, pepper, coffee grounds, Irish spring soap, mint, etc. I think they're too young to be deterred by these things. Perhaps you and Gail would like a new challenge. Any <laughs> suggestions? I guess patience would be the... The one thing, um, Yuri, they're like teenage squirrels. They don't know what they're not supposed to like yet, so they're out there just doing, they're mischief makers, and uh, it's just at that age, and they will uh, they will settle down a little bit, but, you know, squirrels are going to be chewing on stuff. That's just one of the things. I put up a feeder out here, and I had it up there for a long time, and it had wire with 
plastic on the outside, and it wasn't the thickest wire, but it, I, I had it up last year, and it worked fine. Well, I get the baby squirrels out here now. They chewed that in two. <gasps> oh, no. So I, I put it back up with kind of a, a little bit thicker wire, but not thick enough because they chewed that in two, and it fell to the ground. didn't hurt the feeder, but they're... You know, there's no reason for them to be doing that. Well, do they uh, need to sharpen their teeth like bunnies do? Because bunnies, sometimes they say just chew because they need to keep their teeth down. Do squirrels have that issue or no? They sure do. Okay. And again, these baby or teenage squirrels are out there. They're cute, but they're just, well, I don't know, trying to find their way in the world. And maybe the they ate the seed. I kind of put it up for the squirrels. It's a, a large platform feeder and and maybe they've eaten all the seed, and they said uh, this will let him know that we need more seed in here. I'll chew this, and it'll fall to the ground, and then he'll bring out more seeds. Well, maybe. I learned a lesson the hard way with um, where I place my bird feeder. At the lake house, I put my bird feeder uh, on the under the eave of our, it's kind of like an overhung porch area, and right underneath are my hostas and some coral bells. So this birds knock seeds out well guess guess who is digging in the hostas and the coral bells to get any yep. last seed so they basically wrecked my my two plants that were under the the feeder Aww. so so that'll teach me so i put like a little cage around each of them and i'm going to move the the bird feeder because it's just not a good place and i mean i'm i kind of ask for it because why wouldn't you want to look for the seeds between the the plants that's right and there are some feeders that have kind of uh catchers on there that will gather up most of that stuff hmm. uh, so there are things that people can get or you can you know put some kind of screen under it and attach it in some way but it's probably a lot easier just to move it uh susan kennedy has two chickadee boxes 15 feet apart and uh, oh, i used to tell everybody man you've got to have those chickadee boxes a long ways apart otherwise you're not going to get them there if you do get them they're just going to fight and it's just going to be calamity and a terrible thing and you know boy i've been proven wrong this year <laughs> i don't know if it's uh, if the bluebirds we didn't get as many bluebirds, and a lot of them were late coming, so there were more boxes available for rent by chickadees. And maybe they've just made a truce this year said, you know what, we're just going to get along. We're going to get along because we got this this bonanza of nesting boxes. Well, Susan has two of them, 15 feet apart, and they're not around the corner of the house or anything. You can see both of them 15 feet apart. And she said this was, I believe, yesterday morning. I saw the parents delivering food to the south box, even though they looked and sounded ready to fledge inside. I'd always thought that the parents withheld food on fledgling day, but not here. They were at least four chicks in a box in the morning, although some may have fledged, but by 4 p.m. they were all gone. I did see a parent fly to the box to check that they were all gone, which I thought was interesting. Saying, yep, just... Well, we all do that, don't we? We go back to the room before we go out to the car saying, oh, was there anything else I was supposed to take or do today? You walk around the house before you can leave. It sounds, I've got to say, it sounded like those keys. those birds had uh, trouble with the parting. You know, it's the empty nest syndrome and they just didn't want to let go kind of when kids go to college. You're not ready for that yet. That's a most excellent point, and that had not occurred to me. But that very well might be just going in there and say, well, goodbye. Thanks, Box. You were good. <laughs> uh, the North Box, Susan said, is a few days from fledgling. But 
are fledging, but I was never able to determine whether these were just friendly neighbors or a friendly sharing of a male. I definitely remember seeing a bird fly from the south box to the north box before I even knew there were eggs. So it remains a mystery. Thanks for listening to the details. My non-birder friends have their eyes glaze over if I tell them <laughs> too many details. So. Everybody is a birder, Susan. A lot of them just don't know it yet. They will uh, come around and be enlightened sooner or later. Uh, Judy Hall Jacobson. Judy uh, is, uh, I met Judy and became friends with her when she was Judy Hall, and then she became Judy Hall Jacobson. And she is from Haines, Alaska. And she said a few days ago, Al, a hermit thrush landed on the birch in front of our cabin and sang to me for a little while. This has never happened to me before. And they uh, have one of the most beautiful songs, Hermit Thrush. And Judy, you deserve it. So I'm glad you got the uh, glad, that performance for you. Uh, John Beale of Medford said, Al, last night I walked between her garage and the old granary. As I came out on the south end of the path, I was greeted by this baby cardinal. And he sent a photo. He hopped right towards me. Maybe he thought I would feed him. All of a sudden, here comes Mom and Dad within about 20 feet, all excited, calling him and her to them. This was a first for me to see a baby cardinal this close. I hope you can zoom in on the check for a better look. Nature sure provides us with some interesting things to see and watch. Stay cool. One I'm drying, John. One of the things I observed, you're speaking of watching nature and be entertaining, there was a bumblebee on my uh, climbing honeysuckle, and it's called Sensatia. And it's got this beautiful scent. I mean, you, it just perfumes the entire air. And there was a bumblebee going from, I guess, flower to flower on it. So I just sat down for a while and watched it. And as it was going from flower to flower, that nectar, I think that's what it's called, or is the pollen, just kept collecting. And its its legs got thicker and thicker and thicker with big blobs of, of yellow uh, pollen on it. And, and then I thought, well, how heavy do they get? How much do they collect before they go somewhere and then what what do they do with it yeah it's and they take it to wherever they're living and i've i have taken so many photos of especially some of the little uh, smaller uh, native pollinators the small bees they put these huge pollen bags on yeah and it's, as you say these big yellow or golden and they fly because I watch them. I said, "You can't. You're not even going to be able to fly." But away they go without any problems. So they have an amazing load capacity, yeah. and they're able to take off with those. But I'm just thinking, man, it's it's no wonder they don't live very long because they just work <laughs> that hard, and that's just got to be hard on the whole body. But yeah, that's that's great. You got to see that. I I I'm with you. I could sit and watch those guys add pollen on. And just uh, that could be my day. How do they there. distribute that pollen when they get back? Do other bees eat it, or or what exactly happens? Do they just dump it somewhere? I'm just curious. Yeah, no, they take it back, and, and again, it's dependent on the on which kind of bee we're looking at, because they all probably have slightly different. First, they need to get through customs, of course, <laughs> but uh, they bring like. Oh, on these legs, I don't know. They're saddlebags is yeah. what I call them. Some people might say they're like a football of of pollen. And these, these pollen pellets, 
they have nectar, and I'm sure, I have no doubt that that's a third of the weight of a bee's weight. Uh, it's got to be. And they hang off the hind legs, and then they carry this precious cargo to their hives. And there's long hairs on the bee's legs that help hold the pollen in place. And they take it there, and then they are uh, spread about the hive and used for all the kind of things. How they get them off, they rub the... They rub them, I would guess, one leg against another to remove this from their legs. And uh, I think probably maybe pollen basket is the correct term for that. They look like saddlebags to me. And it's just amazing how they do that. And they come in there, and they're used to feed this and that and whatever else. It's one of the world's all-time great foods, probably. Honeybee pollen is the one that we think of, but bumblebee pollen would be very similar. And it's a complete protein. I remember learning somewhere from some wonderful teacher who I don't remember who it was, sadly. But it's uh, it feeds the hive and keeps everybody going. And when the uh, it's just really neat to see. And I'm glad you brought that up. And then, what exactly is the honey? Is it actually bee poop, which is what somehow we've been told or or what is that is that i I, i'm just wondering because it's not the pollen it would um we'd probably sell less of the (laughs) i say we we have the alberti audubon society yeah and uh we have bees and we probably have oh i think there's is there three we have between 30 and we may get up to 60,000 bees in each one of those. And we produce, and again, I'm saying we, you know, I'm so lightly involved in it. There's a lot of, we have beekeepers and stuff that do all this. But they are the ones that do that, and then we sell some of it to raise a little money. And we everybody that's a member gets a couple of things of it, so it's... But honey starts as a flowered nectar, and it's collected by bees, and then it's broken down into simple sugar stored inside the honeycomb. And the design of the honeycomb, and they do that constant fanning that bee yeah. wings cause the evaporation, oh. and then it creates this sweet liquid honey. So it's made from the nectar. Okay. And the honey's color and flavor is based on where the nectar is collected. Okay. So, uh, you know, different trees, people will talk about they get it from these trees, buckwheat honey in some areas, and it might uh, honey from avocados out uh, in California and wildflowers here will maybe have a dark amber color, so it's really cool. Uh, Don Grussing, it might be Grussing. I know Don, but you know it's one of the, it's funny how many people you know, and you sit down and they say, I wonder if I pronounce his last name right. I just call him Don. He says, as long as I can remember, this ripening of the mulberry bushes created a great bird busyness. This year, there are very few interested birds. Usually it's frenetic. Robins, bluebirds, blue jays, house finches, even an occasional crow. Others which seldom eat berries. This year, hardly anything but four drunken squirrels (laughs) chasing one another with great speed and then making 25 to 30-foot leaps from oak branches to the ground. Not just once, but a lot. Sounds like Don might have teenage squirrels as well. (laughs) 
Uh, berries just falling to the ground. We have a Cooper's hawk hunting the neighborhood, and it did get a just-fledged robin in the mulberry bush the other day, but that's not enough to explain this absence. For the first time in at least 20 years, a wood duck abandoned a nest in our wood duck house after producing nine, nine nice eggs. Last year we had two broods, one after another, with a hooded merganser investigating in between and perhaps dropping an egg of her own. House wrens and phoebes are acting normal, as are all the woodpeckers and white-breasted nuthatches. Something is going on, but I don't know what. Um, yeah, they, wood ducks. Wood duck is the only North American duck that regularly produces two broods in one breeding season. And the frequency of double brooding is related to the length of breeding season, which, of course, means it's more likely to happen in southern part of the country than the latitudes here in the northern and a short interval between first and second broods sometimes indicates that some double-brooded females are probably lost their first brood and are trying another one. Otherwise, uh, my mulberries here aren't quite ripe yet, Don, so I don't know what to tell you on that. I know we have a lot of raspberries this year, but uh, they're far from ripe, and last year I was picking them. I don't know how big they'll be with the dryness, but we'll see how it goes. Well, my husband was saying that, that this year the, the birds have ignored the crab apples too. Usually in the spring, they just flock to the crab apple tree and you know and get the ones on the ground and in the tree. But this year they didn't do that at all. So I don't know if they had other food sources or what was going on because they kind of ignored those as well. And some of the birds that will be eating that, yeah, we have uh, a bit of a shortage of them this year. Oh. Uh, again, those winter storms for some of our migrants that spend the winter in the United States and Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and those places. So I think we did lose some birds, as I guess would be expected when those kind of storms hit. Hmm. Gerald Hoekstra saw a chestnut-sided warbler in Rice County, so that's a, a migrant already, probably turning, making a U-turn. I hope not. I hope maybe he just got lost. He's not ready, really thinking of going anywhere. Uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has updated its list of birds of conservation concern. It's a report mandated by the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act of ooh, 1988, which was uh, another warm year, a terribly hot uh, summer and spring. But the new report identifies 269 bird species, subspecies, or populations that represent high conservation priorities for the Fish and Wildlife Service and deserve proactive attention. A few of them that I just plucked out of this uh, that are concerned that are around here, the eastern yellow-billed cuckoo, the rain crow, the chimney swift. I saw one flying over a barn uh, when I was doing a breeding bird survey uh, lesser yellow legs that pass through here, belted kingfisher that uh, most people are aware of, the bobolink, which sounds like the happiest bird on earth when it sings, the scarlet tanager that makes us all go wow, and the uh, fairly common rose-breasted grosbeak oh. that is just a wonderful addition to a good share of our yards. And those are some birds that are um, um, having a struggle right now. Uh, a listener has... How big is a bald eagle nest? A really, really big. It's four to five feet in diameter. That's why they very often build it in like the biggest tree they can find in an area, or one of the biggest. 
And bald eagle show an incredible nest fidelity, meaning the same pair returns to the same site year after year, and they add sticks as part of the pair bonding. And this can produce gigantic nests. The largest recording recorded bald eagle nest was in St. Petersburg, Florida. It was nine and a half feet in diameter, 20 feet deep. Whoa. Think of that, 20 feet <laughs> deep. And it weighed almost six thousand pounds and i believe that probably broke the tree sooner or later i'm not sure on that but i can't imagine how it did not it's just uh, amazing and uh, if they have good luck in that nest you know then they're they're really going to come back because they say man this is just we raise babies here every year why would we go anywhere else do they ever have issues with like lice or anything you know things from previous years being in the nest, or is it outside? You know, because you talk about cleaning nest in like a, a box or something that you might have every year. I clean my little wren house. Do they have that issue as well? They would, but not like maybe our little songbirds, just because of the difference in size. But I know there's a number of host records, they would call it, of various parasites that get on bald eagles. Okay. But uh, so they they certainly get them. I would think it would take an awful lot before they would uh, change nests, but I'm I'm sure it could probably happen. But with some of the small songbirds, man, you know, those tiny little birds in there, you get a lot of parasites on one of them. It's just a a tough thing and a tough thing to see because... I remember as a kid, uh, a nest would fall down, and I'd try to get them back up in the tree, and then I'd try to pluck off all these little uh, creepy crawly things <laughs> that were on the little birds. You know, and it just, it just, I felt so sorry for them because they don't have a fly swatter, they don't have hands to scratch where they itch. How lucky are we? We can man a fly swatter and just swat things that bother us. And birds and things are are not given that opportunity so it's uh, it's a you know it's kind of a cool thing to see now looking back i don't know that i thought it was that cool while i saw it the first time i thought it was kind of ghastly but <laughs> looking back it was a cool thing to see and a cool thing to learn speaking of squat swatting at things i was out last night watering and uh, the mosquitoes are out and i also saw my first fireflies isn't it neat and not so neat about the mosquitoes, probably? And I have noticed them when I get into the shade, when I yeah. walk into the woods here. All of a sudden, it's like somebody blows a whistle, <laughs> and they all come, and you can hear that at night when it gets pretty quiet. I can hear that as they're yeah. coming for me, and it's just a, it's a scary thing in a way because, boy, mosquitoes <laughs> are just... We have... Um, I don't know. You know, I try to like mosquitoes because they feed birds and fish and dragonflies and who knows what all they feed, but it's hard to really warm up to a mosquito. Yeah. It's just you, nobody says, oh, good, It's and they smile when they see them. I usually see the first mosquitoes, you know, I, I want to say June, um, maybe second week of June, but I know I looked up 
uh, oh gosh, a few months, maybe last year I looked it up, and I had a number of May reports, the oh. end of May, like the last couple of days. But we think of them as uh, fireworks around the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. I think that's when people really start uh, noticing them, maybe because we're sitting out somewhere watching the fireworks, and then we see these guys flying around. They like wetlands, wet ditches, tall grassy spots, old fields, forest edges, and sometimes lawns that have natural areas are good places to observe them, and it's it. Those guys were so happy to see. The mosquitoes, not so much, but boy, the little guys with the pulsating tail lights. Yeah. It's just how cool is it to see those? I, I just love fireflies. And I love you, good listeners. Thanks, man. I hope you're all just, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I walk and I drink all kinds of water, <laughs> and I think I am getting about a mile to the gallon. <laughs> water it just it's man it's amazing how fast that runs through a guy i was out the other day and, and thanks everybody for sitting on the front porch with us i i counted contrails in the sky over my flyover yard and the number in of uh, the big airplanes in the sky is certainly increasing if those contrails are any uh, any proof and i looked up and the bright sky caused me to sneeze and I'm one of those guys that I sneeze three times. I, I don't know why I have three, but I sneeze three times. I'm envious of people that only sneeze once. And I remembered a day last year when I was masked up, which when I think about being masked up, it certainly prevented contagious yawning. <laughs> when you're in a group with a mask on, you could yawn, and everybody around you didn't yawn. True. They didn't really know you were doing it. But I was masked up in a grocery store, and I felt the need to sneeze. I don't know if any of you went through this. When the pandemic was at its peak, you got that mask on, and you need to sneeze. The pandemic had changed the world, and uh, I didn't know what to do, run outside, run in the bathroom. But I was able to wrestle the sneeze. And I said wrestle, not wrestle, because you wrestle a sneeze. I was able to wrestle the sneeze into a stifle but not before I considered sneezing into the mask. <laughs> if I had sneezed in the busy store at that time, I doubt anyone would have said, God bless you. Remember, folks, Heartland us while we're driving past. Thanks for listening. Uh, do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. And thank you, Karen, as always, for your wonderful company. Well, thank you, Al. And until next week, happy bird watching. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.